0: All right. <laughs> we are in Mark 14. There it is. I will give you the verses in just a second. <laughs> 32 through 42. If you have a Bible you want to turn there with me. Um, yeah, this is fascinating because, you know, it's so funny. Sometimes we all, we all go through this at work, but in different ways. But I saw what the sermon, the text was about, and I thought, oh, sweet. I did a sermon on that a few years ago same passages but from matthew so it'd be real easy no that's not true <laughs> especially when you i've been focusing so much on the context of mark specifically uh i really couldn't use anything from matthew so that that alone uh again i'm a school school is always in the session so that was a uh, very interesting because the account here you think i mean how many different ways can you tell about a guy who's really stressed out praying in a garden and bleeding Uh, There's apparently a lot of ways to tell that story. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, We had read for us this morning the other infamous garden in the scriptures, Adam, with all the comfort of food and a wife and the faithfulness, sinlessness, in a garden uh, attempting to fight off a snake. And now we have, I, I think, a garden that we often forget about, Gethsemane, and and this here is a man without a wife and with no one and fighting a snake. Uh, And and what happens in that garden is fascinating and is the difference in all of our lives. And so before we consider that, let us together pray. Father, we thank you (coughs) um, that the story of human history began in a garden And in the center of that story is is another garden where you yourself came and destroyed our enemy. You began the battle here on this evening, struggling not with man, but with yourself. Father and son struggling together. And this is the story that you've made us a part of. And we pray, Lord God, that as as we consider these things, that we remember the garden, city to which we are all headed. And that we would, with unfeigned faith and devotion and love, run towards that garden where your Son awaits us. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. See, it doesn't work when you start getting all emotional before you even start the introduction. Hmm. What is obedience? What is it? We, you know, in, in traditional marriage vows, my wife, she did it. She said it. There were witnesses. She said, I will honor and obey him. What does that mean? Children are supposed to obey their parents. Again, what does that mean? What does obedience look like? What is it? Well, what we are going to find out is that, like a lot of things in the Bible, it is not a standalone thing. I cannot just explain in this very Greek way exactly what obedience is, What I have to begin to do, if you're going to understand obedience, is explain other things, like what love is. Because obedience is not merely hearing a command and doing it. That's what I think many of us think it is. right? Obey your husbands, okay? So when he tells you to do something, you will do it. Right? No. In order to understand obedience, we have to understand love. And, okay, what's love then? Well... Now I have to explain other things, like dying to yourself, because that's what love is. Love is not the feeling, but the actions that we, the things that we do in recognition of another. That person is more valuable than I am. And so you act a certain way when you love. And when, and when you're loving the Lord your God, when you're loving your husband, when parents are loving their parents, what they're doing, what they're doing is loving that person more than themselves. That's what obedience is. You know, the reason most wives are, are struggle so much with obedience and submission is because the husbands who are supposed to teach them how to do it are really bad at it. Because given the definition that I just gave, husbands are then supposed to what? Love their bosses. Putting that, their boss ahead of themselves. They're supposed to right, love their kids by putting their kids ahead of themselves. And, and if you don't think a father submits to his kids, right? just wait until 3 a.m. when you hear the puking sound and you go running. Right? Yeah. There's obedience there. A father who's obeying his responsibility as a father goes running into the room and tries to beat his wife into the room when he hears the puking sound at 3 a.m. <laughs> right? I was just at the gun store the other day there was this beautiful Glock 17 with this green slide. And I thought, you know, this would be really nice to own. In fact, it matched my tie. <laughs> I thought the kids could eat rice for a few days. It's good for them. It teaches them character. But because in that moment I struggled, I, I struggled there. I didn't sweat blood, but I struggled. I was an obedient father, and I put the gun back into the case, and I walked away. And and we don't typically think of that as love. We don't typically think of that as obedience. But that's what it is. And because we are called to obey the living God, because we are called to obey Jesus, and because we have such a long history of not understanding what that means or what that looks like, Jesus said, Dad, I will go and I will show them. I will show them what it is to obey you. And and I will show them that I do it because I love you. Right? I need, I'm going to show them what obedience looks like because I'm going to show them what love looks like. And I'm going to show them what love looks like by dying. And if you're ever confused about what love is, what obedience is, just turn to this section in Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And there you have it. There's a picture of what obedience is and what love is. See, obedience is a responsive action. It it, it begins outside of ourselves. That's where obedience comes from. Someone tells us who has the authority to tell us to do something, or someone outside of us, another person, needs something, and then what that does is it elicits a response from us. Obedience is a response. It begins outside of us. I think this is something that we easily forget about obedience. Now, This is why things like the Ten Commandments, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, there is a preamble. There is a statement that God makes before he tells the the people what to do. He tells them what he has done because he wants that preamble there because every every time uh, his children, every time the Israelites go to obey one of the Ten Commandments, he wants them to remember the reason for doing it. And this is what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Boom. He starts with the first commandment. Because he wants every single one of the commandments, the obedience of those commandments, to begin, he wants us to remember who he is and what it is he's done for us. Now notice what it doesn't say. I am your boss. You will submit. Now, do these ten things or it's not going to go well. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. So try not to steal each other's stuff. And when you remember, you know, I was a slave and now I'm not. That, 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 right there is all you need to obey. He does not lord it over anyone. What he tells them is who he is. What he tells them is what they have done. Now, I dads, husbands, I've actually tried this. I brought you into this world. Now clean your room. It doesn't work the same way, right? <laughs> it doesn't work the same way. But, but what we have to, re, right, we have to remember the God who is giving us the commands. And it is a God who, for no other reason than love, came into Egypt and saved a bunch of people that in the end didn't really want to be saved. When it really came down to it, they didn't want to leave. And when they did leave, they wanted to go back. And yet he did it anyway, because he loves them. And because he loves them, he tells them what to do. And because of who he is and what he's done, that is the reason that they should obey. Never just raw power. Raw power is never the outside... (laughs) starting point for obedience. The Ten Commandments are a response. To what? To a God who simply commands from on high? No, they are a response to the love that God has already shown them. Now, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the category of words relating to obedience are often words related conceptually to hearing and watchfulness. If you look at the words, excuse me, in Hebrew and Greek, the words that are generally translated as obedience usually have something to do with staying awake, right? watching, staying awake, and hearing. To obey is to hear. To obey is to stay awake. Right? Now we add this to love and selflessness. Now we're actually starting to get a picture of what obedience actually looks like. Both concepts express respectively the ideas of yielding to persuasion and submitting to authority. Staying awake and listening have to do with a a response of submission to someone outside of yourself. Commands to hear often express a general call to God's people to follow his commands, whereas the visual words, ones like to watch or to keep, tend to focus on individual statutes. Now, to make that clearer, because that's a theological definition there, remember in the garden, what was Adam told to do? Watch and keep. What was he given? A very specific direct command. Don't eat off of that tree. Generally, when Moses is telling all of Israel right, to wake up and pay attention to God because he has certain requirements from them, he talks about it in the sense of wakefulness. Stay awake. So you, the, these terms kind of mean obedience in two ways. To watch or to keep is specific to a person and, and specific to direct commands. To hear is something that God commands of all human beings. The first Adam failed to watch out for enemies. He failed to keep what was given to him by disobeying the word of God's command. Adam failed to protect the garden by disobeying in the garden, leading to his hiding in the garden. There were two things that Adam did wrong in the garden. The first one, as Joel pointed out very clearly, he was with her the whole time. The original ex- science experiment was Adam in the garden thinking, you know, I've got more ribs. Let's see what happens to her when she eats this thing. Let's see. Is she really going to die? I mean, I got more ribs. It was really easy for God just to take one of them, and boom, he's got a woman. I got others. So I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to just be like, hey, uh, trimming the tree. What's going to happen? And then she eats it, and she doesn't drop dead. They're like, oh, this seems cool, right? What does God know? And he eats it too. He was not staying awake. He was not watching. He was not keeping. He was not, right, pursuing God in the midst of the struggle. To undo that situation and all it entailed for humanity and the cosmos, God required another man to go into the, to a garden and obey. See, everything that happens to Jesus is a response to something that we have failed to do, all of it. He succeeds where every other man has failed. He is a better husband. He is a better friend. He is the better son. He is the better prophet, the better king, on and on and on and on. And so in order for him to fulfill his mission, he's got to go into a garden, and he has got to be tempted and struggle in the same way Adam did, and he has to prevail and overcome. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, "...and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." The closing of Christ's Passover meal with his disciples ends in the gospel according to John with this statement. John 14:31, "But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father." Is Jesus going to the garden out of sheer fear of his father's power? Is he going because this is it's just like he it's like rote mechanicalism, like God said it, I do it. No, he's going to the garden because he loves the father. And when you love someone, you, you do the things that they require of you. When when a wife is obeying a husband, she's doing it out of love. When a father is doing the things that are required of him as a father, he's doing it out of love. That should be the motivation. Because that's Jesus' motivation. Sometimes when it comes down to it, I have little kids, I understand. Sometimes you just put the fear of dad in them. Sorry, fear of God in them. And that will get you, that, that'll get you a certain distance in certain circumstances. I, I remember this story about a father who his kids trusted him so much so that one day they're out walking in a field in Montana or Idaho or somewhere and the dad suddenly shouts at them, stand still, don't move. And it was fierce and nasty and the dads never talks that way. But they understood who was talking to them. But there, for a moment it was just out of sheer fear. Well, what they didn't see was the rattlesnake. The dad saw the rattlesnake, and he wanted the, the kid to stand still and not move. And, and, and the reason that the kid did it, I think it wasn't even initially the fear in the, in the father's voice, coming from the father's voice. He trusted that father. right? And I remember this uh, years ago, because God is very gracious. I had a son who uh, we were at a picnic, and he's holding his plate of hot dogs. And, and I said, okay, uh, sit down. You, we'll sit down and we'll eat and he just sits down right where we're standing. And What I meant was we're going to walk over here, we're going to sit at the picnic table. And I thought, man, that kid just, he, uh, he was cheerful about it, but he just did literally what I said right then. And, and that's the kind, right, there, there's, there's got to be love, there's got to be trust, there's got to be a lot of other things going on for that kind of obedience. I think the lie that we tell the lie that is told about us and our god is that there is a more fear than love in what is going on we fear him and so we do what he tells us we fear our husbands so they do what they tell us we fear man and so we right but how much of the christian story going all the way back to the very beginning how much of it is motivated out of love that's really what we're dealing with and we need to get away from all the clutter we need to clean up these situations in our homes and in the workplace and in our community and in our minds about who it is that we're serving and why we're serving him. If you're doing it out of just fear, if you're doing it out of just mechanicalism, you're doing it wrong. Christ loved the Father. That is why everything that is about to happen, that's why it happens. He's motivated by love. right? God the Father can tell him to do anything he wants. He has that kind of raw authority, but he, it, that's not what is going on between the Son and the Father. Our passage today explains what should have happened in the Garden of Eden and the apostles' understanding about what Christ accomplished in Gethsemane on his final night. This is, in fact, the last night of Christ that Christ experiences on earth. This is it. He's entered into less than 24 hours on this planet. This is what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, we typically tend to think of this verse as referring to just the cross. But the obedience of Christ began when when he first was incarnated and proceeded all the way through to the cross. And I would say the height of it begins here in the Garden of Gethsemane. By placing the, the episode between the prophecy of the desertion and its fulfillment, because what has what Jesus said? Jesus said, you're all going to run away from me. One of you is a backstabber. Now, what then, right, there's a fulfillment of all of those words, but in between, what we need to see is what Christ actually accomplishes. Because in one sense, the this, this story about what happens to the disciples who later become the apostles is very important for everyone. And that's what we're going to see. We tend to revere people, like, especially like the apostles. If you, I mean, if, you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, they tend to be super people, right? They're like the Superman and Captain America and Iron Man of Christians. They can do anything they want. They don't struggle like we struggle. Well, what have we seen thus far in the gospel part, right? They are failures. It's important to understand that every man since Adam, including David, including Moses, including Paul, including John, they're all failures, all of them. The thing that any faithful man has in common is not in them, but it comes to dwell on them. And I think that is part of why Mark includes this little story here. Because we need to understand why, right, how did this knucklehead Peter... Right? If you are if you living in this time and you hear the gospel story and you come to believe and you hear this story about this guy, Peter, and then you meet Peter, you're like, how did that knucklehead become this guy? How did, the, how did Peter from Mark become Peter in Acts? Because there he's like fearless. There he doesn't ask any stupid questions. Right? There he's not a bumbling fool. How did he go from that to that? And, and it's very easy for us to look at other Christians and think that it has to do with them. Well, look how respectable that person is. Look how put together they are. Look at their kids. Look at their lives. Look at their finances. Look at this. Look at that. They must be remarkable. Sorry, they're not. There's nothing remarkable about them that comes from within them. Everything remarkable about about any Christian comes from outside of them. So obedience begins outside of us. What's remarkable about us comes from outside of us. That is what I want you to have in your minds as we begin to unpack the story. That Jesus would suffer alone through prayer, pursuing obedience to God in a garden, provides the ultimate comparison to Adam, who was not alone, and yet failed to obey God in a garden. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. So so for some of the disciples, all he wants them to do is sit down and wait. The olive orchard called Gethsemane was part of an estate at the foot of the Mount of Olives. The road up from the Kidron Valley would offer a natural boundary on the south side of it, while the dimensions of the estate were most likely marked out by a stone wall. So imagine just a very beautiful olive garden on the edge of town. It's nice grass. There's a nice little stone wall. It's very... Pastoral, it's very idyllic, it's very nice. Like I said, it's probably a wonderful place at that time of the year to take a walk after dinner. It's a beautiful location. The name is Hebrew, meaning an oil press, indicating that the plot of land specifically where they are is where they pressed the olives, which was big business then, it still is. This place was familiar to Jesus and the disciples. In all, all throughout the Gospels, at different points of their lives, this is the place where they come and they camp out. And in the instruction to wait while he prayed, the 11, 11, of them, would have sensed nothing unusual, right? This is business as usual. Jesus has, in the past, spent quite a few nights alone, up on a hill somewhere, praying while we're just sitting around waiting. And they're probably a little glad because, right, Jesus has been stressing them out a little bit with what he's been saying. So yes, Jesus, please, I'm going to sit here in the, in the cool of the evening and rest while you go on up there and you do what it is you do. Mark chapter 14, verses 33 through 36. And he took with him Peter and James and John. Oh, interesting. And began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. The verb used here, watch, as we've said, this is obedience, right? Stay awake, watch. This would have reminded the disciples of the parable that Jesus had told back in chapter 13, verses 34 through 37. Remember, he said, you're the doorkeepers. You're supposed to stay awake, waiting for the master to come home. Well, now the master's going to go up on this hill and he's going to pray, so you guys... Right? I'm very consistent. Stay here and stay awake. Watch out, because there's a snake in the garden. There's a snake in the garden. He's going to come, and he's going to try to get at us like he got at Adam. So stay awake, stay here, and pray. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to pray. The task of the doorkeeper was to watch, and Jesus has rounded off that parable by giving this as a general injunction to all disciples. Right? Mark is making, pointing, like it's like a big neon sign. Uh, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away for a while, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, ascension. You guys stay here and stay awake and pray. This is exactly the parable he was telling us before. The Passover also was to be a night of watching, according to Exodus 12.42. They were supposed to stay awake and, and, and remembering what happened on Passover when they had the meals later on, celebrating it, they were supposed to stay up all night in memory of their staying awake to look for the angel of death that came in Egypt. Well, there is an angel of death coming, isn't there? But it's a different angel of death. It's the snake. The snake is coming. So don't go to sleep, boys. On other occasions, Jesus separated Peter and James and John from the larger fellowship and took them with him on special missions. A a sufficient reason for this action in this case may be found in the peculiar responsibility assumed by each of these men at various times. These three guys usually went with Jesus. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Also, these are the three wise acres who decided to do the most braggadocious bragging about what they were going to accomplish on behalf of Jesus. Peter very recently said, I will even die for you. But you remember the other two, the sons of Zebedee, said, yes, Jesus, back in chapter 10, verses 38 through 40, yes, we can be baptized with your baptism. Yes, we can drink the cup that you're going to drink. Well, here's Jesus struggling with the cup. So good thing you guys are here because you guys said you could drink it with me. I'm so glad. And Peter, man, a snake is coming. I'm going to need somebody who's going to want to die with me. So you just sit right here, homie, and you pray, and and it's going to go really well. It's going to be great. It's going to be a team-building exercise. <clears throat> the urgency of Jesus's instruction was underscored by his experience of shuddering horror. Right? It immediately starts describing what he's going through: shuddering horror, horror. That's a, why is that a hard word for me to say? What do you think it takes for this, <laughs> the second person of the Trinity to be afraid, to shudder, to experience horror? What so far has made him fear anything? Now, and this is, again, this is very important. It's not that something necessarily is coming that he's afraid of. Someone is getting prepared to leave him, and that's what he's afraid of. The prospect of his father leaving him for even a moment is what fills him with terror. Right? What fills us with terror generally is (laughs) things of this earth that are going to take away from us self. Right? Like a man with a gun. Or an empty bank account, that makes us shudder in fear, right? And when we hear stories about God, we shudder a little bit with fear because He's holy and He's perfect and He's just and He's exacting. But how many of us think, man, it would be kind of nice if the gaze were off us for just a little bit? In fact, we'll sow some fig leaves. Maybe that'll work. We'll hide in the garden. Maybe that'll work, right? How many of us want to get out of the gaze? And we think, man, that'd be kind of nice for a minute. 30 seconds. Imagine the thoughts I could think when nobody was watching. What fills Jesus with terror is not what's coming, but who's leaving. The unusually strong language indicates that Mark understood Gethsemane to be the critical moment in Jesus' life. When the full meaning of his submission to the Father confronted him with its immediacy, and it's full danger to self. When Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, he did so with resolve that amazed his disciples and frightened them, if you recall from Mark chapter 10, verse 32. He was so confident, he was so ready to go, and he was so prepared and devoted and single-minded and ready, it frightened everyone. Now what frightens him is the, is the possibility of his father leaving him. Jesus' demeanor as as his arrest and trial approach is one, was one of resolute calm until this moment. Because he right this is the first really critical thing that he has experienced. Right? This is right we we put it all on the cross and I don't right I have a theology of the cross I think I've covered it thoroughly on other occasions but what we don't have is a theology of this garden here. Because there's still time to get away. There's still time to escape. There's still time to avoid what's coming. And he's got to deal with stuff within himself before he can go and deal with things outside of himself. There's a lesson there. We can't deal with the things outside of ourselves until we first, like Jesus, deal with the things inside of ourselves. His horror anticipates the cry of dereliction on the cross. Jesus seeks the Father here through prayer for an interlude before his separation from his followers and ultimately the Father he loves so much, right? If you love someone as much as Jesus loves the Father, and you know what's coming, which is separation, what Jesus wants is to be left alone with the Father for a moment. He wants to draw strength from that, right? If it's your last night on earth, who is it that you want to draw near to? hey, can you, can you play my favorite music? And, I, you know, there's this bottle of 1997 Chateau Saint-Michel I'd really like to enjoy here on my last night at Earth. And can you make the steak real thick? I mean, Johnny Cash has plenty of songs about guys spending their last evening on Earth. None of them generally go on their knees crying out to God because, again, Jesus is getting close to the person he knows. Very soon he's going to be separated from. And when he opens his mouth... How does he frame what he says? He turns in his mind, instinctively, to the scriptures and the refrain from Psalm 42 and 43. This is what it is, Psalm 42, 5. This verse is repeated again and again and again through Psalm 42 and 43. It says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. That is what's on his mind at this moment, is the, is the words of Scripture. He's framing his prayer. He's framing his circumstances. In his turmoil, he's turning to the Scriptures to express what he's going through. These psalms not only express the soul's deep longing for God, but also contain in the last clause of the refrain an affirmation of faith, a recognition of promises that God will in fact deliver his children. The vivid terminology of verses 33 through 34 prepares us for verse 36, where the reference to the cup recalls the description of God's outpoured wrath in the Old Testament. It's called the cup of staggering. Again, Jesus is framing what's going on in his life using scripture. Because the cup of staggering, from Psalm sixty verse 3 in Isaiah, three different times in verse in, in chapter 51, talks about this cup of wrath, this cup of staggering, this cup of death, that somebody has got to drink. Because you go all the way back to Adam, and everyone has been pouring their life into it. Hatred and wrath and disobedience and brokenness and sin and wickedness and every human life just goes into the cup and into the cup and into the cup and into the cup and into the cup, and who's going to drink it? This is the cup that Jesus is talking about. The thought that the cup could be removed comes from Isaiah chapter 51, verses 17 through 23, where God, in a proclamation of salvation, summons Jerusalem to arouse from its drunken stupor to get awake and to recognize that the cup of staggering has been taken away. So Jesus, again, he's like, yeah, wasn't there a verse in in Isaiah 51 where he said that the cup has been taken away? Oh, please tell me it's happened. Yet scripture also speaks of those who did not deserve to drink the cup, but must drink it. Jeremiah forty nine twelve. And so here Jesus is with two different verses in the Bible. Oh, it's already been taken away. Somebody who doesn't deserve it is going to drink it. And he internally is trying to reconcile these verses. Because in his flesh, he knows what it means for him if it hasn't been taken away. And because he knows all things are possible for God, even somehow this, which is hard to believe, Jesus goes to the Father and says, listen, it's possible for you to take this away from me. Right Right here, I'm going to your word, it says, you you can take it away. But I also know that somebody who doesn't deserve it is going to drink it, and he knows, no one needs to tell him what's inside of man, he knows he's the only one who doesn't deserve to drink it. His entire crisis is shaped by Scripture. He interprets his whole life through it. And he doesn't understand, on some level, how to reconcile these verses. And he's here staggering under the weight of it for a moment. And I'm not going to say forgot. I don't really understand. But he seems, right? These things are reconciled in you, Jesus The mercy of God and the wrath of God are reconciled in you. Somebody doesn't deserve it and it's taken away. That's reconciled in you. And he He knows it. And so he drops down on his knees and he cries out to God. And then he says one of the most remarkable things recorded in the Gospels. He says, Abba. Right? How, would you address, right? How would you address the executioner? I've been working in courtrooms. Nobody calls him father, the judge. Nobody calls the guard father. When you go to the prison, nobody, nobody refers to the prison guards as Abba. Here Jesus is standing before the judge, jury, and executioner, and he says, Father, Abba, Dad. The literature of early Palestinian Judaism contains no evidence of any kind that the term Abba was ever used in reference to Yahweh. How easy is it for us to forget the fatherhood of God and the things that happen to us? And here Jesus is in the uttermost turmoil of any human soul that's ever happened, and the word father is on his lips, Abba. the tenderness and the intimacy between the two, even in a moment such as this. Jesus doesn't hesitate to speak to God as a child to his father, simply, inwardly, confidently, hopefully the way that a small child speaks to their dad. Abba is an expression of obedient surrender and unconditional faith in the father. What is he going through? And what's on his lips is this tender word, in reference to his dad. Jesus' desire was conditioned upon the will of God, and he resolutely refused to set his will in opposition to the will of the Father. He also refuses to consider him as anything other than a loving dad, even in the midst of what he's going through. Now, how many of us, right? Ladies, he gave birth to the child. In the midst of it, right there, when you're like, is this never going to end? My body is being ripped apart as this baby is coming out of me. Did you think Abba? Right? In, in the worst pain and emotional strain you've ever been in was the word Abba on your lips. No, it wouldn't be on mine either. Right? I'm trying to think of the, <laughs> the, the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me. It's kind of hard. My life's pretty blessed. I ran out of tobacco the other day. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I live a charmed life. I'm sorry. It's sad that I can't even come up with a comparison in my own life. But we've all been, right? The death of family members. The estrangement of relationships. Terrible, wicked, vile sin that other people commit against us. And is the thing that's on our lips the word Abba? No. No. This is not how we think about these things. But Jesus wants to show us what love looks like. He wants to show us what obedience looks like. He wants to show us what trust looks like. And in the midst of the worst possible circumstances, the tenderness that exists between him and the Father is supposed to teach us about how we are to endure, how we are to think about these things, how we are to respond to these things. Jesus's prayer expresses an intimacy with God that allows him to speak his mind honestly. When there's this much love, this much intimacy, this much closeness between the two, he can say what he really thinks. Do you ever feel like when you get on your knees in prayer you can't really say what you're going to what you think? Right? You don't want to make him angry. You don't want to really tell him what you think because, you know, then he might kill you, crush you, drop a building on you or something. But there's so much love between the father and the son that Jesus can tell him, right? <laughs> now, and I'm I'm gonna just say this, parents. I just experienced this again for the first time, and I'm never ready for it. When a child says no, how did who taught Peter how to say no? By the way? He, oh, he just uh, seemed to know the word. But there he is, and he looks up at you, and you tell him, "Hey, it's time to go potty." No. And you think what? you You should ask your brothers how that goes (laughs) but here the son is looking up at dad and saying no question mark he at least has the question mark but he's telling dad how about something else right I would I, I, (laughs) I am 39 years old I was just with my dad yesterday you know what I still I try to avoid no I, I try not, I just, you know what, there's just something about it. I try to just phrase it in some other way. I cannot uh, comply with that request at this time. Because there's still something about saying no to him that just kind of sticks in the throat. And, and look at the intimacy here between the father and the son. Look at the tenderness, the closeness. He's as honest as anyone has ever been with God the Father. And he's not afraid. Why this? Why this? Why not something else? Is it possible to do something else? You can do anything. Look at the faith even in the midst of it. And yet Jesus, in his agony, here he is. Oh, God, I'll be right back. Father, Abba, I'll I'll be right back. I have to go and check on my friends. In the midst of this, in the midst of this struggle, right? Because he's wrestling with God, like our forefathers, He remembers the fools. Do you remember the fools in the midst of your agony? Do you remember the wife, the kids, the neighbor in the midst of your deep struggles? Oh, man, this is real bad, but you know who I should check on? The schlubs. It's remarkable how he can think of anybody else or anything else in the middle of this. But he goes and he checks on them. Mark chapter 14, verses 37 through 38. And he came, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, I thought his name was Peter, sorry, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And that's a little hour. It's been less than an hour since he was talking about how he's going to die for Jesus. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When Jesus interrupted his praying to return to the disciples, he found them what? He's like, oh, guys, I'm sure glad I brought you. Look at how, how much, look, you're sweating blood too, Peter. Thank you. I feel the love. They're literally sleeping. They're not awake. They are not watchful. The snake, while wow, Jesus is prayer, right? Because he, he tells them to, now he wants them to pray and watch for themselves. But what about him? He's not even saying, hey, watch out for me, right? Who's got my six? Who's got my back? Are you, right? Right? In, In a patrol, when you're walking around in the woods, there's always that one poor guy who's picked to kind of walk a little bit backwards, right? Just to make sure nobody sneaks up on the rear. But Jesus isn't even worried about that. He's simply worried about them and their fall and their temptation and their weakness. He's not even concerned for them to be concerned for himself like so many of us are. Well, I really want you to watch out here because, really, what I want you to do is watch out for me. That's not what's on his mind. And he refers to Peter as Simon. He refers to his name, the name that he had before he grabbed a hold of him and brought him along. Because what he sees now is not Peter, he sees not the son of the father, but the son of Satan. He sees him in his natural state here. This is why he's going to talk about flesh. He's like, you're not Peter right now. You're Simon. The searching question concerning sleep and the failure to watch is addressed to Peter first because he is the one who just less than an hour ago was talking about dying for Jesus. You're like, you can't even stay awake for me, bro. What are you talking about dying for me? So he uh, obviously turns to him first. The pointed reference to his inability to be vigilant for one hour prepares for the account of his faithlessness. It's all talk, Simon. Jesus came to the disciples primarily because he was concerned for them. He did not instruct the three to watch and pray for him, but for themselves. The command to watch means to be spiritually awake to face the severe testing of loyalties, which is coming. How much clearer could Jesus have been? One of you is a backstabber. All of you are going to run away. But hey, let's go out to this garden. Less than an hour later... The words that he gave them are coming true. He, their loyalty and their faith in him and their and their faithfulness to him, their fidelity, is being tested right then. And they're completely unprepared. Right? And it is <laughs> you will be tempted by sin. And then we go outside and we get in our car and we drive away from here. And then we're like, what is this temptation? What is this? Where did this come from? Right? And we're like, if you just left church an hour ago, or you know, you're talking about sin and stuff, like. You know, I mean, have you ever been reading your Bible and you're just like, that's super spiritual high. And it doesn't even last an hour. right? And you're like, man, God is good and I'm going to do good things for God. Watch me, God. Watch me go work. Forty-five minutes later, you're cursing your neighbor. <clears throat> because his dog won't stop barking or something silly like that. The command to watch means to be spiritually awake. Temptation is coming temptation is coming they're in a garden remember and he is the new adam and so what right if they understood the script if they understood what was happening they would be like oh okay well he's he's the new adam this is a garden let me think back to what happened before adam in a garden here comes temptation but they're asleep it's not quite fig leaves but they have in a sense hidden themselves in the garden because they're not awake and then he says to them right your flesh The problem is your flesh. The problem is that you don't have the Spirit of God. The problem is that you are not walking according to the Spirit of of God, the Spirit that Jesus has. They're walking according to their flesh. They're still Simon. They're not yet Peter. The willing spirit that he's referring to is, is a reference to Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Spiritual wakefulness and prayer in full dependence upon divine help provide the only adequate preparation for crisis and temptation. From suffering and tragedy, spiritual wakefulness is obedience. Jesus prepared for his own intense trial through vigilance and prayer and thus gave to the disciples and to the church the model of proper resistance to temptation. But what good is it done? Where are they at? Mark chapter 14, verses 39 through 42. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And the irony of that statement while well, he's looking at them. Because I've always thought he was referring to Judas. But he's just looking at everybody at this point. Look, I'm surrounded by them. Later in Philippians, it says he's at hand, right? The God died on the cross and went into heaven is at hand here with us and for him what does he have at hand nothing but betrayers nothing but backstabbers he left the disciples and made the same request to his father and we don't go into detail in the gospel of mark because mark's not concerned about that he doesn't need to focus on what jesus is doing because jesus has got things handled what he keeps referring back to now is the failure of the disciples because that's mark's point yes that's true. John was just here visiting us last weekend, and his sermon was amazing. But, bef- but lest we forget, right, lest we think I can never rise to that level of sanctification because, man, John is amazing. Let me tell you a story about John and a garden and the Lord Jesus who was in need. Peter and his fellows were warned in vain. They failed utterly. This, again, is not arbitrary such prayer is at one and the same time a confession of the weakness of our flesh. That's the point of it. This is not sufficient. I'm going to need some assistance. Showing forth the readiness of our spirit, joined with a realization of the power of God to whom we pray. pray. This is what prayer is about. Prayer is about our weakness and his power. All things are possible for him, Jesus says. I don't know if I can do this, he says. That's what prayer is about. Right? But God, you know, my car could use a little work. Let, let's pray. We're really in need. We're in desperate need. And it's not because my flesh is weak and God is powerful, but it's because my neighbor is annoying. Because I'm really worried about this math test. Now, is God not worried about your math test? Yes. But how often is our prayer, we simply sit down and we're writing an email, like we're making requests, like we're ordering food online. Because for me, that's all. usually, right, I I was ordering online, and you put, like, notes and stuff in there. You're like, well, I really would like the Pad Thai, but leave out the peas and blah, 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 blah. And, like, this is, I was like, this is like praying. I feel like I'm praying right now while I'm ordering this Thai food. Abba. Abba. This is weak, but you are strong. This, it will fail, but you will not. That's how Jesus is praying. That's what he wanted his disciples to do. And they failed. Because we always fail. Prayer is an expression of faith and obedience. Now, it's very interesting that the Greek verb translated as could not is the same verb Jesus used back in chapter 9, verse 18, to describe the powerlessness of the disciples to heal the boy at the foot of the mountain of transfiguration. Remember that? They come down off the Mount of Transfiguration, these same three clowns, and there all the rest of the disciples are, and they can't cast out this demon because why? They didn't pray. They're utterly powerless. And he says to them, you couldn't do it because you didn't pray. Now he's saying to them, right? He's saying the same thing to them. Their powerlessness is brought about by prayerlessness. Jesus' power came not from himself, but from heaven by God's spirit as requested in the humility and weakness and faith of prayer. Remember, Jesus is walking around. He's laid aside his divinity. And who is always with him? Spirit. Who is always with him? The Father. And that's how he's been able to do everything that he's done up to this point. And they see him doing great things. At one point they say, teach us to pray because they too want to do great things, but they haven't yet learned the lesson. Obedience doesn't come from within. It comes from without. There was a scandal in Gethsemane. It concerned not Jesus... Not Jesus. The scandal is not Jesus. The scandal are his disciples. His immediate disciples who slept when they should have been watching and praying. A burden of shame rested upon the three who had come to be regarded as the closest to the Lord. Even the three guys who walked around with Jesus are still failures like the rest of us. This eliminates saint's days, I'm going to just say. There is nobody who's so holy and so perfect, we pray to them. There's no no person so holy and so perfect we don't approach them and have a relationship within the community of God. There's no such thing as perfect people except Jesus. You aren't, and nobody else in this room is. And we ought not to fear man and be intimidated by this idea that people can attain perfection in this world. Well, I can't be friends with him. I mean, he never swears. He's got it all together. His whole household is together. I, I have no place standing amongst him. Yeah? Well, you should see him in the Garden of Obedience. How well does that guy function? Yeah, he looks pretty nice in that tie on Sunday morning, and his car is pretty new. But how do you think that guy does in the Garden of Obedience? The same as you. He fails or he succeeds because it doesn't come from within him. Success comes from without The opening words of verse 41 underscore the utter inability of the disciples to understand what is happening to them. Jesus, this is, <laughs> he's seen enough. This is what I love about what he says. He turns to them and he says, it's enough. Can you imagine the exasperation? He looks at his disciples who were supposed to be keeping watch with him, and he says, it's enough. Which is, sounds a little bit like it is finished. But here he's looking around at man and he's like, I have seen enough. <laughs> All right? My eyes are full. My ears are full. In verse 35, Jesus had prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He now says the hour is here. He's got his answer. And it's in through the circumstances of his life. Please, God, take this hour from me. And now he's saying, he's saying. And how does he sound? Does he sound like he's hiding? Does he say like, hey, Peter and John, could you, could you please dig a hole so I can hide in it? Quick, grab all of these olive tree branches and start making leaves and sew them together and make a covering and some camouflage for me so that they can't see me. No, he says, look, my hour's here. The one I was just sweating blood to get rid of, here it is. It's enough. I'm ready. Let's go. as the betrayer approaches, Jesus rouses the disciples from sleep with a sharp command, rise, let us go. These are the last words that Jesus speaks to them before he's killed. This is it. This is the last time he talks to the disciples. And what does he say? It sounds an awful lot like follow me. Here it is. Here's the moment. Here's the moment we've been working on for three years. Let's go. Wait, where did everyone go? He's standing firm. He's standing right where he's supposed to be at exactly the moment he's supposed to be there. Where did everybody else go? Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that, right? How many times do we... I mean, like, come on. Bernie Sanders is running for president, for goodness sakes. The coronavirus is about to kill all of us. And do you ever think, where... Where'd you go, God? Where, where are? Where is everybody? Where's the leadership? Where's the love? Where's the... Right. I thought the kingdom was supposed to be winning, and now apparently something that sounds like a Mexican beer is going to kill everybody. <laughs> Coronavirus. That is hilarious. And now people aren't drinking Corona. I mean, could it get any funnier than that? <laughs> we'll talk about that later, son. Jesus's apparent defenselessness and humiliation in Gethsemane is veiling his true dignity. There is something veiled here, right? But it's not Adam and his fig leaves. What's veiled in this moment is who Jesus really is. Because do you think if they knew, right? If he suddenly shone forth like he did on the mountain of transfiguration, do you think they would have run away? Right? Because again, that's the God we can all get behind. Wow, he looks like a, he he looks like he has feet of steel he looks like a walking moving tank he's right you look at revelation he's got swords shooting out of his mouth like okay i will follow that guy into battle but then you get to this garden and here's the guy with blood on his forehead because he's so stressed out and you're like uh, those guys have clubs and swords i gotta go i gotta leave i can't handle this if he had sword shooting out of his mouth sure i'd be in This is this is this is it. This is the game changer. This is the definition of the Christian life. When all looks lost and all you have is the guy with the bleeding forehead who doesn't look like too much, too powerful, too strong. Is is that when you're gonna hang in there? Is that when you're gonna hang in? We'd like to think so, right? Because we're like the disciples. And and but this is the thing. How do we hang in? How do we actually do it? Because I'm telling you, there's no hope for you. In yourself, none, none, and it's the important right. These are the two things. If you, this is it for myself, for my children, my wife, every counseling situation, every time I teach people anything about God, it's this you can't do it alone, you will fail. Right? Let's go again, let's go back to the beginning of the story and let's follow the story of man right up to the point where there's guys who are walking with Jesus and he's walking on water. No, if you think it's you, if you think you have the power to overcome the porn, if you think you have the power to put the bottle down, if you think you have the power in yourself to be nice, you don't. You don't. There is no hope in you. None. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's us, So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's us. And the thing in between the bridge is him, Jesus Christ. The man who went into the garden and was absolutely faithful, not because he had to, not because he was full of fear, but because he loved the father. Genesis 2 through 3 tells how our father Adam's disobedience lost life with God for all his descendants. Paul proclaims how, through Christ's obedience, the gift of righteousness, the guaranteeing glory, comes to all who are linked to Him by faith. Today, you choose life or you choose death. And what's life? Jesus. You're you're surrounded by death. You are death by yourself. Nothing good will come from you by yourself. Nothing. Even now, you've got the water. You got the bread. You got the wine. Yeah, go try doing it by yourself still now. If you go it alone, moms, if you go it alone, dads, if you go it alone, kids, you are going to fail every time. It's the only way the story is going to go. In the worst agony any human being has ever experienced, there was a man who, for the love of the Father, got on his knees, sweat blood, and said, I don't want to do this, but I will if you ask me. And the answer comes, and he says, okay, let's go. No matter what he looks like, no matter what the circumstances look like, that's the guy you want to follow. That's the guy you want to hang it all on. That's all the money now on the table. All all of your kids, your spouse, your job, put it all on the table now because that's a bet worth making. That's a man worth following. That's a man worth imitating. In the dark night of the soul, the, right, get on your knees, close your eyes so that you don't see the circumstances, and say, Abba, try it. Try it. And say, you know, I, I have... Nothing. And this story will end here in utter failure unless you come from outside of me and intervene. Unless you come from outside of me and dwell here with me in the midst of this darkness, it will remain dark forever. There is a bridge back to the Garden of Eden. There is a way through the darkness. There is a man who could do it. And it's not you. It's Jesus. And... and (laughs) This, right here, right? Okay, here's the failure. It gets worse than this. The story is going to get even darker than this. Now, how do these lambs, these little bleeding lambs who run for the hills as soon as there's danger, how do these become the lions of Acts? Because Jesus said, you know, it's better that I go away. It's better. Well, no, what could be better than having the physical Jesus with you all the time? I mean, come on it's better that he goes away. And the only way that he could get there, the, the only way that he could go away was going this way, the way of the cross. Because there's no crown without a cross. There's no glory without dying. There's no him without putting self away completely. And it's when you do that and he descends from on high, look at what they're able to do. Look at the kind of men they become, the kind of fathers, kind of husbands. This, you want to accomplish great things for God? Die to yourself. Do you want to know where obedience comes from? Do you want to know where love and tenderness and real faith comes from? It doesn't come from within you. It comes from without. And he has made a way back. He has said, listen, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to clear everything out of the way. Just call out to me, call out to me, and I will come. Because the life that the church is living now is stuck in this position. Wait here, I'll be back, but stay awake and stay prayerful. Oh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, there's one. I know what you guys need. Here, here's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God so that when you read the Scriptures, you can understand it and you can frame your whole thinking around it. Here's the Spirit of God so that when you're in the dark night of the soul and you need Abba, all you got to do is dial in. Just say the words Abba, like pushing buttons on a phone, and boom, you're there with him. Here's my Spirit. You want to do great things and be more than yourself? Here's the Spirit of God. And that's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for every one of you. And that's what Jesus will do every day that you ask him to do it. Ask him to do it. Cry out, Abba. Cry out, I am here in the name of the Son. I am here in the name of the only one who's obedient. So forget me, think of him. And you know what? He'll do it. That's what the Father will do. Every He never gets tired of it. He loves it. In fact, he's like, hey, you know what? <clears throat> It's been a while since so and so has cried out to me. Let me here. Let me get so. Let me knock one of his idols over so he does it. Oh, right. It's like trying to get your kids' attention when they're playing. So you turn the music down. You're like calling, and you're okay. So you come and you take the toy away. And you're, Hello. The father will do it. He will faithfully pursue you until you turn to him and cry out, "Abba, Father." And then what you will see is the same love and tenderness and spirit and goodness that the son experienced, you will experience it too. Father, we thank you so much. We pray that you go before us. We pray, Lord, that you fill our hearts with a desire to see ourselves diminish, that you may increase. We pray, God, that as we go from here, that this would not be simply an exercise that we do once a week, coming here, listening to your word, singing and praying here today, we pray that this day would be the day that teaches us how to live. You went ahead of us. You were alone, utterly alone. And you accomplished all the things that we could not for us so that we can always access it. We can always be present in it. We pray that you give us the faith, that you fill our mouths with cries of mercy, that you teach us in the darkest moments and in the joys of this world to say, Abba. And to, to, to know that your spirit is with us. And that because of that, we can accomplish great things for you. In Jesus' name, amen.